Hey, it's uh, City on the Edge, special coronavirus quarantine edition. Um, yeah, we're, we're stuck at home. And in fact, I'm not going to be joined by the normal City on the Edge hosts because they're also in following the governor's stay-at-home <laughs> order. Instead, uh, I'm joined today by my spouse, Courtney Fitzgerald. Hello. <laughs> uh, she is my co-host for Any Town USA podcast, where we talk about different different towns throughout the, the United States. Um, but she also happens to be a master of public health and an epidemiologist. Ooh, I, like, the... I like that you called me a master of something. <laughs> I have a degree that's a master's degree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and well, you're you're an actual epidemiologist, although you don't deal with infectious diseases. No, mostly I do like behavioral surveillance, which sounds incredibly creepy. <laughs> Especially it, yeah, right it now. does actually. <laughs> well, it might, might be important. So, what does that mean, behavioral surveillance? So, in most industrialized countries, you know, with the exception of like the current situation that's going on. Most people don't die early from infectious disease anymore, mm-hmm. which is not to say that that's still not a problem in the world because it totally is. But what you're finding is more people die from chronic diseases or so-called, and I'm doing scare quotes here, lifestyle diseases. Mm. So things like heart disease and yeah. cancer. So those aren't things that have infectious agents necessarily right Mm -hmm. um so we tend to do surveillance on people's behaviors like whether they smoke cigarettes Mm -hmm. or how much they're active or how you know how often they eat fruits and vegetables things like that right so that's usually the kind of work that i do so not totally relevant to the current situation but um no related so if you think about like social determinants of health and that's things like food insecurity and poverty and those affect all of the things right Mm -hmm. and if you're living in places that are like for example maybe you're living in a like substandard housing or like worse you're homeless Mm -hmm. then you're going to be way more susceptible to you know infectious disease as well as chronic diseases so those are kind of like root cause things that we're also really interested in like everyone who does public health is interested in that stuff too that makes sense Mm -hmm. and also you uh you enjoy podcasting uh, and um, you're good at talking about stuff, so figured let's let's bring her on uh, for today. Anyway, you just had a ready co-host who yeah. couldn't leave the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, so today is Saturday, the 28th of March. Um, we've been in. I'm considering. I'm considering like a quarantine kind of situation ever since APS canceled school, right? So this is the 13th day. We've been distancing socially. Yeah, I guess that's right. Not quarantine, Mm -hmm. but socially distanced. Um, How's the experience been going for you? I hate it, but everyone (laughs) hates it, but it's really important. So yeah, I mean, there's aspects of it that I'm enjoying. I kind Mm -hmm. of, I like being home with everybody more but it's also difficult and challenging to figure out a balance between 
the three things in my life that tend to occupy separate spaces are kind of all crammed into like one thing right now. And that's yeah. difficult. And I should point out you are currently pursuing a PhD. So you are technically a, a full-time student right now. Mm -hmm. um, although there are no classes at UNM, you're, you're doing schoolwork at home and, and yeah. reaching out to your instructors and fellow students. And, and missing deadlines. And missing deadlines sometimes. <laughs> oh, um, God. And then you're also a full-time employee of the University of New Mexico, the Prevention Research Center. So you've got a lot on your plate. So basically, you're working a you're working an eight-hour schedule every day just at the house. At least. And the kids are here, too. And, you know, they, they are... Uh, how can I children. Say they're in the room. I don't want to hurt their feelings. They're, they're children. They're children, and they and like they, you. They, and, and, and they need attention yeah. from adults. And I need attention from you too. And so I'm annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. But I'm I'm sort of working. I I work at KUNM, um, and so I do have a certain amount of of duties to do, but nowhere near the the same level. So I'm kind of doing the more homeschooling stuff for the kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, although still, you're doing that too, I, I will point out you are you are putting some time in there. I do the math. Yeah, you do because I'm hopeless with math. <laughs> and you do the language arts. Yeah. And then yeah. we kind of like share the science and social studies. So yeah, we're and making just, it work. <laughs> you know, just to give uh, future listeners an idea of where we're at, we're we're at 191 cases of COVID-19 as, as of right of now. As of yesterday. As of yesterday. I think it's probably more t right now, but I haven't um, checked. Everybody's stuck inside. The governor gave her stay-at-home order, so. Um, unless you're working at a grocery store or a doctor or a, a nurse or something like that, then you're probably, you know, working from home or laid off. A lot of people are laid off right, right. now. And, you know, everybody's kind of going crazy right now. Well, That's how I, I feel. I think everyone's a little stir crazy. Yeah. But everyone's been pretty civil so far, and that's good. Yes, yeah. No, I mean, people are civil. But, I, you know, I look on Facebook and I see, like, the... People posting, and I, I think there's a lot of like anxiety, and um, you know, some people are lonely, and some people are just, you know, very worried about the future. So. Well, especially people who are like immunocompromised, oh, or yeah. older people, or love someone who's an older person or an immunocompromised person. Right. You know, there's a lot more anxiety about that too. But yeah, then just like the cabin fever, isolation, like social mm -hmm. isolation is serious. Yeah. It. It can be just as harmful as smoking cigarettes. Right. You know, it, it, there's a lot of the same kind of like poor health outcomes come from that. So, And it is, you know, I mean, there's four of us in the house. So certainly we're not isolated in the same way as some people are, are literally isolated. And mm -hmm. I, my heart really goes out to them right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I found myself... Uh, taking some time this week to look into the some of the historic illnesses and quarantines from from Albuquerque and, and New Mexico's past. Oh, it's, did you want to see if this has all happened before? <laughs> it certainly has. Make you feel less lonely? I feel like that's just part of my way of coping with things is learning about, you know, learning about how this, what was it like when this happened before? So I thought, you know, we'd, we'd talk a little bit about that today. Mm -hmm. Um of course, we've covered different illnesses before on the show. Uh, we talked about hantavirus and the Black Plague, and certainly tuberculosis comes up a lot. A lot. <laughs> so we're not going to really get into those ones too much. Um, talked about 
smallpox before, but we are going to, we are going to get back a little bit into that as well. Um, I think what I, what I find comforting, I don't know if comforting is the right word, but it's, you know, it's, it's like when you know that, that something has happened before and you can kind of relate to the people who've been through it. It is, there is a sort of a comforting feeling to it. You know, people have survived these kinds of things before. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is by no means the first time that uh, illnesses have (laughs) ravaged across New Mexico. Um, It has been a while since any so completely shut down the city of the state, but no mean by no means the first time. Um, so you know, looking back, obviously, as long as there have been human beings, those human beings have been subjected to to different diseases, mm-hmm. and in New Mexico, that's no different. Um, unfortunately, it's just the the nature of looking back that uh, the Puebloans who lived here prior to the the Spanish colonization didn't really have much in the way of written records. So, or any real written records, they didn't have a history. Oral history. They have oral history, but not a written history. So we can't really talk with a lot of knowledge about what kinds of things they were experiencing. But we do know that the Spaniards brought a whole new spate of diseases with them when they came to New Mexico. Um, Typhus, cholera, Mm. smallpox, uh, and just like in most of the Americas, when this kind of colonization contact happened, uh, those diseases wound up having just an absolutely devastating effect on the indigenous population here. Yeah, I think that actually in Douglas Preston's book, he's an author from Santa Fe, <laughs> this, That's right. this The Lost City of the Monkey God, um, which is about kind of, I don't know if I would say they like rediscovered a disease that had been dormant in the jungle <laughs> for probably hundreds of years but before they he talks about that he kind of talks about the indigenous population in the americas Uh having been decimated even before the spanish came yeah um and something like 90 percent of the population had been wiped out and that's just crazy to think about horrifying apocalyptic right that's probably like the definition of apocalyptic Mm. they were living in a post-apocalyptic world and then the spanish came and things got not better Probably. Did you <laughs> like, say he discovered a disease lying dormant in the jungle? So, yeah, so that book is really awesome. If anyone is interested in like both adventure exploration books yeah. and also public health disease, oh my God books, then yeah. that one would be super entertaining for you. But yeah, they basically discover a lost city using uh-huh. LIDAR, which we'll talk about here in right. a second, actually, in the jungles in Honduras. Uh-huh. And go out and camp there in this jungle yeah. to try to find evidence of that civilization, which they do find. And they also are bitten by lots of flies and then contract a horrible disease called Leishmaniasis, right. um, which has no known cure. Oh, great. So, yeah, problematic. Um, but anyway, we'll talk about Albuquerque for now, though. <laughs> yeah, well, you were saying that they used LIDAR here yeah so to give us kind of some insight as to how diseases worked uh, soon after right colonization i guess right before and soon after right so there was some interesting research by harvard university archaeologist matthew liebman and it kind of gives us a picture of the impact that the spanish introduced epidemics right that those Mm -hmm. those diseases had so in 2016 liebman also used lidar and that's 
light detection and ranging, kind mm -hmm. of like radar, which is radio detection and ranging, only instead of using radio waves, they're using light. Right, right? Like lasers. Yeah. Right, and it, it uses pulses of laser light from an aircraft, so they do flyovers back and forth, back and forth, and they basically scan the ground, and it mm -hmm. has incredible precision to the point that they can detect like pretty minor changes in elevation that might, say, indicate the presence of some ancient settlement, right? right? So like if all the ground is this level and then there's this one space that's about X feet long that's mm -hmm. slightly higher or slightly lower, and it might be perfectly square or really close to it, which is not a shape you typically find naturally mm -hmm. occurring, right? Then it gives some indication that there might have been settlements there. Yeah. So then once the villages are identified... Where were they doing this? Um, where were they doing this? I think they were doing this in the Hamas. Yeah, around, uh, yeah, that makes sense. So once they find the villages, a dendrochronologist, which mm -hmm. I guess is someone who studies trees, is that... They like, study tree rings, right? Tree like rings. Basically, they, they can tell the age of something by studying the trees and taking samples of them. Yeah, so they take samples of the trees, and, they, and in this case... Um, in 2016, they took samples of the trees that grew over the ruins that they had found, and they determined that the age of the trees was around um, from the 1630s and 40s, mm -hmm. right? So that's when the trees had sprouted. Right. So it suggests that the villages were abandoned about that time, and that's when yeah. the trees were able to grow back and kind of take over. And these were like lots of villages yeah. up in the Hamas. Right. So that's about 100 years after first contact which indicates that the diseases were, which caused uh, these villages to be abandoned didn't really get going as a result of those first few meetings between the Spaniards and the Puebloans, um, which was one theory that researchers had when they went and did the study. But when the Spaniards really ramped up their colonization efforts, that's when things yeah. started to go wrong. Um, well, not just, not just diseases, but many things. Yeah, you sure, know? sure. Um, but to give an idea of how devastating this was, the Harvard researchers estimated that the Hamas area had had about five to 8,000 people living in it before this, what they're calling the Great Abandonment. And in 1680, the Spanish recorded only 650 people living there. And even if that was like an underestimate to be like, oh, there aren't that many people, that's way less yeah. than five to 8,000 people. Right. And they were only, uh, they had located to a, a single village, which is where the modern day Pueblo of Hamas is now. Right. So all those there, there used to be just loads of villages up in the hills there. Um, so the Spanish colonists who brought the diseases obviously like had more resistance to them, but they still suffered from them. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, one of the major problems that they faced was a lack of medical supplies and doctors in the, in the territory of New Mexico. Um, in the early years before the Pueblo revolt, Franciscan friars would bring caravans of different supplies up from Mexico and, and they recorded things like they had 35 pesos worth of medical supplies with them. Uh, but they only came every three years. So whatever 35 pesos worth of medical supplies translates to, um, from 1650 to now, uh, it wasn't getting up there that much. Yeah, and I've got to wonder about medical supplies in 1650 anyway, because <laughs> yeah. that predates germ theory by quite a long time. Right, you know, it's, right. 
it, it sanitation was a real big problem still. I, there are so many. I don't know <laughs> well, what medical certainly... supplies consisted of is what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I, I'd be really interested. To... Well, this was the era of bleeding people, too. Yeah, I, I mean, that I was, was like, oh, well, you need, you've got too much blood. That's why you've got smallpox. <laughs> I think they it wasn't because they thought people had too much. Right? Yeah, but... <laughs> had bad blood. Right? Bad, yeah, bad get blood. out the fevered blood, the sick blood. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, they the Franciscans had a kind of hospital set up in, in San Felipe Pueblo in the 17th century. Um, but, you know, again, primitive medical techniques, bleeding people low supplies uh they just were not really able to like they could deal with maybe day-to-day stuff mm-hmm. okay but whenever there were these epidemics that would outbreak uh every decade or so they they just couldn't keep up with it and in fact in 1780 there was a particularly nasty smallpox outbreak in new mexico that it actually started with a flare-up in the the via de albuquerque which is old town um 31 citizens died of the disease right at the beginning by 1781, smallpox was just raging across New Mexico. Uh, another 19 residents of the Via de Albuquerque died in uh, in one month in January. Wow. Thousands of Spanish and Puebloans were succumbing across the area. Just to give an idea of kind of how prevalent it was, uh, a few years later in 1804, Spanish did a survey in Albuquerque. Um, they found that there was a population of 6,930 people. And of them, only one single adult had not had smallpox. Wow. And then not only were there, you know, this kind of infectious diseases that pass from person to person, another major issue affecting colonial New Mexico was water sanitation, (laughs) which, uh, and by which I mean, there wasn't any really. (laughs) Well, and also like practices, right? Yeah. Again, because people didn't understand germ theory. Yeah. And they didn't, it wasn't something that people had really begun to address at this point right. in history. I mean, I guess the Romans had aqueducts and things to try to bring clean water into yeah, populated areas. But they were super sophisticated civilization for that time. Right. You know, and that, but it's, it, but you know, it, it's basic things like you don't poop upstream from where you draw right. your water to drink. Right. Cause even mm. if you're not pooping directly into the water, runoff will cause bad bacteria. Right. E. Coli and, <laughs> bad stuff to get in the water and you don't want to then be drawing your drinking water from that right. source right and basically all the water was coming from you know at best like shallow wells so groundwater mm-hmm. um but more often like from the local acequia or a river mm-hmm. um people would bring in a large vessel into the house and they'd have like a, a dipper and they would all you know share from the same dipper it's just how you did it um and sometimes this could have some pretty nasty health repercussions. Water sources could become home to a bunch of protozoa or other forms of parasites or bacteria. Kind of a funny story about this is in 1846, uh, General Kearney's Army of the West invaded New Mexico as part of the Mexican-American War. They took over the Via de Albuquerque. And the soldiers just like immediately came down with horrible, horrible diarrhea, probably from the local water. <laughs> the debilitating diarrhea. De- yeah, I think absolutely is, is debilitating. What you wrote in the notes here. Yeah, that's 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 hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and then we're promptly kicked out, right? Kearney's army was no, they? no, no. Kearney, they no. Actually, the, the residents of the uh, via the Albuquerque were kind of happy. That was after a number of decades of being neglected by the Mexican government. Oh, I, I'm sorry. It was yeah. the civil war. You're thinking of the, the civil Southern, war. Yeah. The Texans yeah. got kicked out. No. Um, I mean, there are, 
at the very least, it seems like the New Mexicans at Albuquerque were fine with Carney coming. I mean, there was no like, or you know, armed resistance against him. They were <laughs> just just germ warfare, apparently. Just germ I mean, warfare, unintentional. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are some stories where they're like, "Oh, they sang to them as they marched in." I don't know if that's true or not, but um, at the very least, they weren't real mad about. Carney coming, they were maybe happy to have some <laughs> some attention from some government at that point. Well, another health issue that was facing people in this in this area at this time, right? Yeah, the New Mexicans, the Americans, the Spanish, and the Pueblo people was head and body lice. According to historian Mark Simmons' book Spanish Pathways. They had a pretty effective solution for dealing with the body lice anyway. Um, They would spread their clothes out over ant mounds, and apparently ants really like eating body lice, and they would clean out all their clothes. That's hilarious. And of course, they had to get the ants out of their pants. Yeah, (laughs) well, I guess that's easier to get out than body lice. Yeah, the the body lice, you know, the ants ate them, but, but the head lice, of course, you can't take your hair off and lay it down on the ground. So the best option people had was to either, like, cut their hair very short or shave their heads right. or, you know, just pick it up by hand, which never really gets rid of them completely. Um, yeah. So people probably just had to live with them. You know, you can live with head lice. It's not going to kill you. It's just itchy and irritating, but yeah. yeah. And actually they, they're not a vector for disease, which is surprising to me. Right. Like they don't have many like pathogens no. that, Mm-mm. that, uh, so they're just, they just live on you. They just bug you. And literally. And they're kind of gross, yeah. right? Like you get stuff crawling in your hair. Yeah. Um, outbreaks of cholera, yellow fever, and yes, of course, smallpox continued to occur over the years, but with less frequency and fatality. So people kind of the, the population began developing some herd immunity to things mm-hmm. that had already ravaged them several times. So the coming of the railroad line the Via de Albuquerque, became the twin towns of Old Town and New Town. And New Town became increasingly urban, with more and more medical professionals arriving, mostly to take part in the tuberculosis economy, which yeah. I think is kind of gross to call it a tuberculosis economy. But that's what it was It here, totally right? was. Yeah. That is exactly what it was. It was an industry. And I think you're going to talk about that another time, right? We've talked about it before, okay. you know, and then we uh, probably will talk about it again. It's not the focus today, though, that's for sure. It seemed like the kind of epidemics that had beset the territory might finally be a thing of the past, right? But then came 1918, when Albuquerque and all of New Mexico and basically the entire world <laughs> discovered that, that was they weren't off the hook, right? right? So we don't know exactly where the 1918 flu came from. Didn't you say that it was an H of like a variant of H1N1? Yeah, so it, the H1N1 flu that we dealt with here in, in the world, I guess, a few years ago, is closely related. Like, I think it's it's an evolved form. It's a mutated form of, of, of uh, the 1918, 1918 flu. flu. Yeah, But there's evidence pointing to origins in the UK, maybe China, yeah. and maybe Fort Riley, Kansas was one place that they found yeah. early uh, evidence of it. But there's nothing definite. No matter where it came from, though, by August of 1918, it was having basically deadly effects in France, Germany, the UK, and the United States. 
But because this was during World War One, like right at the tail end of World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Those countries censored their newspaper reports of the disease in order to mo- maintain morale because everyone was already sick to death of this like endless world war. Yeah. And this was not something that they wanted people to get upset about in addition. So they repressed news in all these countries that were participating in World War One. However, Spain sat out World War I, and mm-hmm. so it wasn't under any of these requirements, right? So its newspapers freely reported the outbreak, which had unforeseen effects of giving readers all over the world the impression that Spain had been uniquely affected because yeah. they were the only newspapers reporting it. So as a result, the sickness became known as the Spanish flu. Yep. It was not necessarily Spanish. And if you're wondering if people were upset in Spain that it got <laughs> called the Spanish flu, yes, yeah, they didn't they totally like did. it. So, you know, we should probably just call it the 1918 flu pandemic. Right. Um, Although Spanish flu is what it's commonly known as now. But in September of, uh, of 1918, it was... It was um, you know, outbreaking enough in the United States that newspapers were starting to report on it. And in fact, if you look at uh, the Albuquerque Journal from September 12th of 1918, you can see one of the first mentions of it as being a threat to New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But you can also see that kind of uh, minimization of it, you know, probably because of the censorship concerns and also, uh, you know, just that that trying to maintain morale. But they said... Um, you know, it is the opinion of officials that the strange infection has been brought over by persons on returning American transports. Spanish influenza, although short-lived and of practically no permanent serious results, is a most distressing ailment which prostrates one for a few days during which he suffers the acme of discomfort. Mm. Wait for the clock to be done. <laughs> Okay, so you can see that, you know, it's like, oh, it's coming, but, you know, it's actually not a big deal. Does that maybe sound a little bit familiar? And then in the Santa Fe, New Mexican, on September 28th of 1918, two weeks later, they similarly, like, minimized it, saying, oh, well, with our salubrious atmosphere and great distance from disease-infected ports, there is little likelihood that the Southwest will be visited by the epidemical malady. (laughs) Unfortunately, they were wrong. (laughs) Um, October 5th, the journal reported that uh, the Southwest had been invaded by influenza. Several cases had been found in New Mexico, although there were no deaths as of yet. And then on October 8th, three days after that, the journal saw fit to publish an editorial that I, I want to read the whole thing of because I think it's kind of amazing. Um, it does feature some racist attitudes towards Native Americans, not to mention just bad science. Don't let flu frighten you to death. The editor of the journal has just talked with some of the most prominent physicians of Albuquerque regarding the epidemic of Spanish influenza, and they all agree that the greatest danger is from the panic of fear that is spreading over the country. Fear is the original emotion and the most powerful. It is the most primitive of passions and is felt by the very low forms of life, such as earthworms. It is the only emotion that they have, and it is the strongest emotion the higher species feel. 
Normally, according to pathologists, fear acts as a chemical stimulant, releasing into the blood the secretions of the de- of the ductless gland, so that the man who shivered a moment before becomes as courageous as a lion and possessed of a strength he himself did not dream of. But there is a debasing and demoralizing fear. To it, savages and ignorant people are still subject. They are frightened at they know not what, at the horrors of their own imaginations. They grovel in their own superstitions and are the victims of their own frightened fancies. There is a panic over the whole country, conjured up over the spread of the ailment now designated Spanish influenza. Experts agree that it is nothing more nor less, and that is enough, than old-fashioned grip. Our ancestors called it breakbone fever. According to the best authorities, the most effective preventatives are avoidance of crowds, wash nose and throat with mild antiseptics daily, keep bowels open and liver active, but without use of heart depressants, live as much as possible in the open and breathe pure air, consult your doctor and act on his advice. Otherwise, forget such a thing as Spanish influenza exists. If attacked by the grip, stay in bed until the fever is over, and be careful not to expose yourself to a relapse. That is the best remedy, as your doctor will tell you. Also, act on his advice. But above all, control your fears. Don't take the flu until you actually have it. If you take grip, don't allow yourself to be frightened into your coffin. That is a very common form of suicide, and an ignoble one. So just stay calm, get fresh air, stay away from crowds, and... Gargle, <laughs> I guess. Gargle. Uh, have some good bowel movements, I guess. I, I just, I want to point out that wash your hands was still not a thing. Oh, good that point. That is still not something that they understood right. at that time. And that is just like mind-blowing to me that, yeah. that wash your hands was not a recommendation yet. Right. But I, I mean, I think there is something to be said for not being all freaked out all the time. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know if... I don't actually know if the flu is the grip or not, but um, it was certainly worse than uh, than they were saying it was going to be. Right. Well, the next day, the city experienced its first flu death, like the day after that article yeah, was published. Right. Um, so the city physician was quick to state that the situation was well in hand, but then on October 11th, city schools were closed. Yeah. And on the 16th, the city commission banned public gatherings of any kind. Um, by the end of that month, the journal reported 821 cases of flu in Albuquerque. What was the population about at that point? Um, I think it was about 35,000 yeah. or so. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and that's people who were symptomatic. Because again, right. you know, not everyone who catches these viruses is going to be sick enough to go and seek medical help right 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 right. so that's still that's a lot of cases in just a few weeks right um they did not report the number of deaths but throughout the second half of october the local item section detailed numerous families in mourning after losing a loved one to influenza so they weren't reporting deaths but in the obituaries um <laughs> so normally like the section of local items of interest it's like so and so came in on the train today and john's working on his porch you know just just little <laughs> kind of things but this, during this time it's all just like so and so lost their son you know and so and so is is sick inside and you know it's, it's it's definitely like having a big impact in the papers there but part of the reason also why we don't really have great statistics on how many people died in this in the flu 
yeah. um, in, New, in that flu in 1918 in New Mexico is that there was no state agency yet charged with doing so. There yeah. was not a Department of Health and a culture of boosterism, right? Where the success of Western cities was touted no matter what was actually going on. It's like, yeah. look how great everything is in the West. Everything out here is so great. We're going to be the next Pittsburgh. Right. And so this, <laughs> God. so this encouraged newspapers and politicians to minimize effects wherever it was possible. And compounding the lack of state-level leadership for fighting the flu was that many doctors and nurses who normally resided in Albuquerque were currently overseas, right? They were still over yeah. helping out with the war effort. Right. And the ones who remained in the city were just quickly overwhelmed. Um, the situation was rapidly getting out of control in Albuquerque. Yeah, although it never it never got as bad here as it did in some of the rural parts of the state. That's true. It yeah. was worse. So um, Richard Melzer, uh, a local author who's done a fair number of books and is always worth, uh, worth reading, um, he had an article in the uh, New Mexico Historical Review in 1982 called A Dark and Terrible Moment, the Spanish Flu Epidemic of 1918. He notes half of Berlin's population got the flu. Uh, nearby pueblos were being uh, pueblo uh, puebloans were being reported as quote dropping like flies, which kind of typically dehumanizing, right? Um, some of these towns were running out of coffins to put mm -hmm. the dead in. This is a particularly grim part here. I'm going to go ahead and read it though, because I feel like it it does give it a well, it gives it a real. Um, what would you say? Gravity. Gravity, right. So this is a report from Chili Lee. It stated, In one home we found eight children lying on the bare floor. Three of these were dead, and the rest were so sick they were entirely helpless. Uh, Melzer writes that in Chili Lee they were digging mass graves, but um, before they could they were just corpses lying on the ground. Uh, on a In a lighter kind of interpretation of what's going on um there was a kind of a, a poet of sorts who wrote a song about how bad things were getting and it was published in the raton range i'm gonna go ahead and read that the flu has got my nanny i'm scared as scared can be if i meet a guy a sneezing i just quiver like a tree i've had three shots of serum and i'm wearing of the mask but if i hear people cough and i fairly hustle for the flask I've lined out several boxes for victims of the flu, and you bet your bottom dollar it makes a fellow blue. So if there is a remedy that overlooked have I, please give it to me most quickly, for I do not want to die. In 1918, the state's total population was approximately 350,000 people. Before the epidemic had run its course, somewhere between one and 5,000 New Mexicans had died of the flu. Albuquerque actually fared relatively well, in part because of its quick action in enforcing a quarantine, right? Remember, it was just days after yeah. that article was published. After the, after the articles about how it was no big deal and no one should worry. Right. <laughs> um, rural areas in the state had been badly hit, however. Um, the state, which was the only one in the U.S. without a Department of Health at that time, had simply been basically unprepared to deal with the illness and its citizens suffered as a result. And this did not go unnoticed by the local newspapers, which began calling for an agency to prepare the state for the possibility of another pandemic. 
And in March of 1919, the New Mexico legislature approved the creation of the Department of Health with an appropriation of $12,000. And, quote, in case of another such emergency as the recent flu epidemic, 25000 additional dollars of the state's money can be used. Yeah. And so that is, of course, the Department of Health that we have today, the very organization that's monitoring the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it's worth noting that our state has recently earned some praise for being very proactive in response to, uh, to combating the virus. This recent stay-at-home order is, is seen as instrumental in, in slowing the disease's spread, flattening the curve, mm-hmm. as it is. And, um, you know, I'd like to think that maybe that's because New Mexico learned its lessons from the 1918 pandemic well and that we are applying them now 100 years later. It, you know, it also might be partially because our governor was formerly the Secretary of Health yeah. in our state. So she may just be a little bit better connected to the Department of Health in, in New Mexico than other governors yeah. are maybe in theirs. Um, but I think also we've got a really good situation as far as we have a lot of tests. We do have, we have a the lot capacity of tests. to test people. Um, and most other states don't have quite what we have in terms of that capacity. Yeah. And it seems to me, I feel like from where I'm sitting anyway, people have been mostly pretty willing to... Um, to take this kind of time <laughs> and and stay at home and chill out and not, you know, maybe we bought too much toilet paper, but like that was all over the country. Well, I just, I can, I can say that I've, I've got a friend who is an epidemiologist who is an infectious disease epidemiologist uh-huh. in New Mexico, who she and her team are responsible for case tracking here. So mm. when there's a new case of COVID-19, we have a presumptive yeah. positive, her team calls all of the people that that person's been in contact with right within a certain time period and tells them you need to stay self-quarantine mm-hmm. for 14 days until you're you know see if you get symptoms and if you get sick then you need to stay in for 14 days after you get better um so she says most people have been super willing to do this except yeah. for one cheerleader mom which i just oh. thought was like yeah <laughs> yeah the cheer, cheerleader mom and just immediately you're like yeah, yeah but that lady didn't didn't do it but not gonna name any names yeah of course not, of course not um <laughs> yeah well it's it's a big pain in the butt for everybody but hopefully we'll get through this and right. hopefully we won't have to do too many uh broadcasts coming to you from quarantine or a what did you call it? Social distancing. Distancing socially. Distancing socially. <laughs> Physically distancing. Physically distancing and distancing socially. Yeah. So, well, thank you <laughs> for listening. I hope uh, I, I hope you got distracted from the current pandemic by listening to the horrors of a previous pandemic. Um, Sharka says hello, by the way. That's our dog who just barked at our other dog. You might probably heard them making some, uh, some conversation <laughs> earlier throughout the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Wash uh, your hands. Don't touch your face. Keep at least six feet between you and people you don't usually see. Um, If you're touching stuff like getting gas in your car, you know, maybe use something else between yourself and the handle of the gas thing, but also sanitize your hands and then wash them with soap and water as soon as you get home. And keep your bowels open, preferably without the use of heart depressants. And get lots of fresh air. Yes. It's spring, which I guess is kind of good and bad because the weather's beautiful, but there's also pollen everywhere. So it's, mm. 
I know a lot of people are like, I feel terrible. Is it allergies? COVID-19? Probably allergies. Probably allergies. Well, thank you. 